The assigned scripture passage for the second Sunday after Epiphany comes from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars to the brim with water. And they filled them up to the top. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him the gospel of the Lord. Well, folks, may the grace and peace of our triune God be yours today and forever. Amen. There is a quote by the late, great Maya Angelou, and I'm actually going to read it directly because I don't want to mess it up. She says, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. I like this quote. And I think that I have a story that embodies that idea. And trust me when I tell you, even if I get long-winded here, that it goes along with our story. Now, some of you out there may know, some of you may not, that I, over the last couple of years, have dabbled in a hobby, a new endeavor of making wine and also home-brewing beer. I've admittedly made way more beer than I have wine, but I've made several batches of wine and I have had to learn along the way. Now, as I think back, the very first thing I ever did was a batch of wine. I actually started with something that is called a white Zinfandel. And interestingly enough, even though it says white, it's, it's a blush, which means it's kind of a combination between a, a, a white wine and a red wine. It's kind of in the middle. It's more of like a pinkish, pinkish hue. But anyway, when I started off, I had to learn on the job because I really didn't know anything about the whole process. So I spent a lot of time reading a lot of online articles that were trying to teach me how to do it. I watched a lot of videos about how to do it. I scrutinized the instructions that I had and, and all the, that came with the equipment that I had gotten a hold of, all of this different stuff because I wanted to do my best to try and make good wine. And what was interesting about this first time was as I read all this different thing, it told me about the water that you start with. Now, here's the funny thing, that anyone who makes wine knows you'd start with water and you turn the water into wine. It just takes a long time. But the initial time when I started off, I basically learned that you can use water from any source, but the source of the water will affect the final outcome. And one of the things that it told me is that you can use your tap water. So the very first batch of wine that I ever made, I just took water straight out of my kitchen sink, and that's what I started with. And I made six gallons, roughly, of wine. Now, it's a lengthy process. The basic, absolute shortest amount of time when you are making wine 
from start until the day when you crack the very first bottle and give it a taste, the minimum is two months. And actually, given the, the way that wine tends to age and mature and kind of mellow and all of that, really, by the time you get to know how good of a wine did I make, you, you might be four or five, six, even more months down the road. So it is a lengthy process from start to finish. But this first batch of wine that I made, I'll never forget when I cracked that first bottle, I was sitting out in the back deck. It was a beautiful, beautiful spring day or midsummer, early summer. And I poured out that first glass and I looked and it, as I held it up to the light, it was supposed to be that blush, remember that kind of pink hue? And as I looked at it, it was kind of a weird reddish brown. And I didn't really like the way it looked. But I took a taste and it tasted okay. And I, along with everyone else who tried that first batch of wine that I made, agreed that it tastes all right, just don't look too close at it. So it was okay, but it wasn't great. Well, by the time I finished consuming that first batch of wine, I had gotten into the beer brewing process and I'd actually learned a lesson. See, with beer, there's a difference. They tell you with beer, don't use tap water. You wanna use spring water. That's, that's what you use because it is way more finicky than wine and therefore, you need to have that type of thing because if there is anything in suspension, anything in that water, it will affect the final taste. And I took that lesson that I had learned from making beer and having made several batches by that time to when I made my second batch of wine, I thought to myself, okay, I'm gonna learn my lesson. And I went to the store and I got spring water and I utilized that. And that second batch, it came out really, really good. And a lot of people agreed, even though it was a different style than the one that I had made the first time, it, the color was good, the appearance was good, the flavor was good, everything was really, really good about it. And I was super, super proud. But believe me when I tell you that for that period of time, that, that initial making of the wine and then waiting on it and letting it go and putting it in the bottle and letting it sit in the bottle, I had to wait and wait and wait and only hope that it would come out better and it did. Now we need to fast forward again and literally right now, as I am sharing this with you, I am in the midst of my third batch of wine. Now remember, I, I did the best I could until I knew better, and then now that I knew better, I learned from it, and I did better, and round two went good, but you know what? I forgot something, and I messed up just a little bit on this third batch, and I actually added too much water. I still had it from a good source, but I didn't take something else into account, and my brain just kind of blanked on it, and I ended up adding too much water to it, and that batch is still in process. It will be in process for another month and a half before I am finally able to open that first bottle and determine whether or not I made horrible, horrible, bad wine that I shouldn't serve to anybody, or if I made decent wine that is just a little bit lower alcohol content than it's supposed to be, or if I ended up making good wine after all. I have to wait and see, and all I can do is hope. Of course, this connects into our story because it's making wine and that's what Jesus does. But here's where things are different. For me, I have to live in wait and be patient 
and I have to hope against hope that everything comes out like it's supposed to. Jesus, well, he does things just a little bit differently. Whenever I think about this story, I'm actually reminded of a stand-up routine from a comedian that I saw talk about this one time, and it really sort of seems to apply. So they're at this party. They're at this celebration of, of, of a wedding. Now, what's different about, about weddings in that day and in that culture was the celebration lasted for a week. And it went on and on and on. And you had to, if you were the host, you had to have all of this, these supplies to continue to supply for your guests. And that includes food and, of course, it includes the wine to drink. The, the celebration must go on. And it was a huge faux pas if things went bad. Now, when Jesus hears that he runs out of wine, here's what the comedian says. Jesus was like, well, you know, I don't normally do this, but uh, let's keep the party going. Essentially, that's what ends up happening. Now, in all seriousness, there's a little bit more going on behind the scenes than we want to know about or than, than we tend to think about in that initial little joke. But we have this, and this is very, very early on in the Gospel of John. We're only in the second chapter. Very little has happened so far. Jesus has been baptized, and we've heard John the Baptist make his, his, his witness or make his proclamation about what he has seen. And then, another, and then there's a little bit more proclamation that goes on. And then we hear that Jesus meets a couple of John's disciples and invites them, and they become his disciples. And then a day later, he meets a couple more disciples and calls them to follow him. So he's got a few disciples following him around. He might have all 12 that we always hear about, or he might only have four. We don't exactly know at this point. But that's basically all that's happened. And then we hear, now he's into this moment here in Cana and when he's at this celebration with those disciples in tow. And they're not the only ones there. We also hear his mom is there. Now, they're partway through the celebration. And remember, I, I mentioned a moment ago, the celebration lasts for a week. We don't know how far into it they are, but they're only partway through, and they come into this humongous social faux pas because they have run out of wine. We don't know why Jesus' mother, Mary, kind of takes initiative. Maybe she knows that Jesus has the capability of doing something. Maybe, she, it, maybe it's a relative, and so she's kind of helping out around there. We don't exactly know, but for whatever reason, she comes up to Jesus, and she's like, hey, Jesus, they don't have any more wine. And he's like, I don't care, which is a really, really weird reaction to hear from Jesus. He's kind of giving his mother a little bit of flack here. But then she's like, hey, whatever he tells you, go ahead and do it. Jesus looks around. And he sees these enormous jars. Each one of them holds like 20 or 30 gallons. That's a ton. Folks, I make six gallons at a time. He's got six jars. Each of them have like 20 or 30 gallons. So we're talking like somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of wine. That's a lot of stuff. And Jesus tells them, take those jars, fill them with water, fill them all the way to the top, and they do. And he says, okay, now take some of that off, draw it off, and haul it off to the steward, let him taste it. And somewhere in this action, in this simple action, something that takes me months of waiting and hoping takes Jesus that long. And this wine, this water which has become wine, is the best wine. I appreciate the astonishment that seems to happen when the steward tastes it. And he, he calls the groom over, who's the groom is the host. His family would be the host. And he says, this is incredible. Most people start off with the good wine. 
And then as the party goes on and everybody's had a few and they start to kind of not pay so much attention, that's when you bring out the lousy stuff when everybody's had a few too many and they don't really notice. So maybe, just maybe, if we were to compare it with the three batches that I would make, the first wine, which would be batch number two that came out perfectly, that would have been the good stuff that happened at first. And then as you get a little bit farther down the line and people aren't paying attention, you pull out that, that, that initial batch that I made that tasted okay but didn't look so great. And then as you get farther down the line, you end up with this new one that I have that who knows might be decent or it might turn out really, really lousy. We just don't know. But this is pointing out this idea that the celebration goes on and the celebration is important. That's the story that we have, that Jesus has somehow taken the initiative. And in this first moment, we hear John's gospel tells us this is the first of his signs. Now, they're also called miracles, although John's gospel calls them signs. And I've oftentimes wondered what is really going on here. It's a very strange little story. And this in John's gospel is what kicks off Jesus' ministry. From here, he will go on and go about his ministry, which lasts for three years before his eventual arrest and crucifixion and death and resurrection. So this is what really kicks it all off. It's different from what we hear in the other Gospels, but this one is interesting. And I thought to myself, what is it about this? Why would John include this? He's the only one who does. This is the only Gospel where we hear this particular story. But why would he start things here? Why would he kick it off in this way? Now, the narrative tells us that he performed this miracle, this sign, the first of his signs, and his glory is revealed and his disciples believed in him. Now remember, he has just started to call his disciples. They might not even all be there yet, but at least four of them are with him. And they witness this miraculous moment, this amazing thing that takes me months to accomplish. Jesus does just like that. They witness it, and his glory is revealed. Well, what does that mean? I can only think that the glory that is being revealed is the presence of the divine, which Jesus fully embodies. That's what I love so much about this Messiah, this Jesus, this God-made human who is also God, which I know makes no sense whatsoever when we really try and think about it, but the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. The ultimate glorious God who is way beyond our ability to comprehend or experience or understand has become human so that we can experience God and that God can experience life as we do. Now, again, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Even listening to it coming out of my mouth sounds a little bit weird, and yet this is what we hear. And his glory is revealed, that there is something different about this man who is also God, this Messiah, and whatever it is that he is up to is something that is ultimately divine. It is not of human, it is divine. And it's more than we can understand, but his glory is revealed. And maybe, just maybe, his intended audience of this particular miracle was those handful of individuals known as his disciples so that they may believe it and believe that this person who they have just begun to follow is truly something special, there's something different about him, and that God is up to something special and new and different in him. When I think about that, I'm reminded of of a statement that is made at the end of John's gospel that I think might just call back to this moment. 
Now, throughout the course of the gospel itself, Jesus performs many signs, many miracles, both before his death and resurrection as well as after. And right at the end of John's gospel, we have a comment that says, if all of the signs that Jesus performed were to be written down, there would not be enough books in the world to hold them all. But these have been recorded so that you may hear, that you may read, that you may believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and through believing, you may have life in his name. The signs that Jesus performs are to reveal his glory, to reveal that this is both fully human and fully God all at the same time, and that that God desires to be with us. That is the basis for Jesus entering into our reality in the first place, and it seems that these signs are done to reveal his glory us. There is perhaps one more moment why this happened in this setting, in the setting of a celebration. And I believe it's because as our God became human to dwell among us, God desired to experience the joy of community, the joy of relationship, and the celebration of life lived together. And that is why he stepped outside his bounds That's why he said, my hour is not yet coming, yet I'm going to take action anyway to allow this celebration, this celebration of a wedding of two lives being joined together into mutual relationship. He allowed that celebration to continue and not be hindered by the lack of good wine for the people. That might be a stretch, but you know what? When I think about a God who desired to become human and experience that life, a God who exists in relationship and seems to desire to be in relationship with us, perhaps it makes sense that God would want to have that celebration continue. And so Jesus says, this is what we will do. May we hold on to the hope that we find in knowing that God does desire to be in relationship with each one of us so much that God will become human and God's ultimate glory will somehow be revealed so that we too may see it and believe.